This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust. A firmly held belief that a person is reliable, truthful, and honest. It can't be faked, traded, or brought... It can only be earned. And unlike any greeting, gossip or pleasantry, trust takes time, patience and tests. Before we let anyone into our confidence and open up to our innermost secrets. Trust is reserved solely for friends, family and in rare exceptions, strangers. Like firemen, policemen, doctors, nurses, soldiers and security. But without a bloodline, a bond, or a uniform, trust requires a kind face, a caring voice, and a calm demeanor. In 1942, the Blackout Ripper struck, killing four women, having gained their trust. He was tall, charming, and handsome, with a crisp RAF uniform, bright blue eyes, and an easy smile whereas Reg Christie was not. He was short, scrawny, balding and bespectacled. A strange man in a crumpled old suit, with an odd little whisper, false teeth that slipped, and no longer being a special constable, no uniform. But what he lacked physically, he made up with mentally, meaning that for a whole decade, his killing spree would go undetected, all because he was kind, caring, and worst of all, patient. In August 1943, Reg Christie murdered 21-year-old Ruth First in a fit of spontaneous lust. One year on, with his urge unsated and his carnal lust swelling, having learned from his mistakes, this murder would be planned to perfection. And with his next victim in his sights, he needed to gain her trust. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspectives. So what part of this story is true is up to you. 
My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part two of the full, true and untold story of the other side of Ten Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing on the A40 on Western Avenue in Perivale, a heavily industrialised part of West London, far from the seediness of Soho, but in an area absolutely vital to our story. As a chaotic dual carriageway connecting the capital city to the Welsh coastal town of Fishguard, you may think you don't know the A40, but with a small stretch of it also being called Oxford Street, the A40 passes by the Denmark Place fire, Freddie Mills' suicide, Jacques Tratzer's homicide, Mary Pickwode's abortion, Abda Al Naif's assassination, several locations of the Blackout Ripper, and as it exits Edgware Road to become the Paddington flyover, the A40 overlooks what remains of Ten Rillington Place. Situated 9.3 miles west of Soho, as one of London's busiest roads, Western Avenue is noisy, dirty and chaotic. As with the deafening thunder of trains, the choking fumes of trucks and the ear-splitting scream as jumbo jets roar out of Heathrow, amidst the thick smog of swirling dust, nasally it's a very confusing place. As being enveloped by factories whose chimneys burp out sweet scents of biscuits, curry and beer. Often it's interspersed by a caustic cloud of chemicals, burnt rubber and sewage. Although I'm standing directly opposite the infamous Hoover building, a stunning Grade 2 Art Deco factory built in stark white concrete with shimmering green glass, the exact location of the place I'm looking for is unknown as what was left has been entirely demolished. Now occupied by the Greenford Premier Inn, a budget hotel where tired salesmen forego the arduous two-hour commute to their wife and kids, and instead sink a few suds, scoff a steak, pay for a porn film by mistake, and mysteriously book a double room for themselves and their daughter who visits her daddy for just 58 minutes. But originally, sat on this site was Ultra Electrics Limited, a radio manufacturer whose war work was so secretive that to confuse any Nazi saboteurs, they incorrectly listed their address as being both in Acton and Park Royal, almost three miles east. And yet, in the summer of 1944, it was here that a shy, bright, but lonely lady called Muriel Edie was lured into the confidence of a delivery driver who had secrets of his own. Muriel Amelia Edie was born on the 14th of October 1912 in Canning Town, East London a dark, squalid and impoverished district on the north side bank of the River Thames. With a skyline chock full of belching chimneys, 
the sooty air thick with an acrid soupy smog, the murky brown water fizzing with effluent, and surrounded by the endless cacophony of docks, cranes and ironworks. This was no place to raise a child. But to Muriel, this was home. Muriel was born at Number 20 Barron Road, in one of thousands of identical Victorian terraced houses built to serve the dock workers in the 1850s, and later demolished in the slum clearance. Although tiny, it was home to their mother Fanny Louisa Eady, five-year-old Reginald, three-year-old Ernest, and Muriel. To Muriel and her siblings, Fanny was everything. A doting single mother who struggled alone on a single income with three children. And although she was still married to William Eady, a sailor in the Merchant Navy who rarely, if reluctantly, returned home and was a father in name only, in the 1911 census, it rightfully lists Fanny as head of the house. And although one of her babies was always sick, as raised amongst the sooty choking gloom of Canning Town, Muriel suffered with asthma, adenoids and catarrh, which would plague her for the rest of her life. Being blessed with such a wonderful mother, Reginald, Ernest and Muriel thrived and survived. And then, in February 1918, as one of the deadliest pandemics swept across the globe, killing close to 100 million people. Having been struck down with deadly influenza, a virus for which there was no treatment or cure, Fanny Louisa Eady died in Poplar Hospital. Muriel was just six years old. Being distraught, what she wanted was a hug. What she needed was her mum. But what she got was William Eady, an unsmiling, uncaring stranger, who being gruff, rough and grumpy, only cared for the sea. And seeing these kids as nothing but a burden, he abandoned them. Three grieving children, all alone, scared and cruelly orphaned, were placed into care at the Hutton Poplar's residential home for destitute children in Brentwood, where they would remain for most of their childhood. And as a shy girl, struggling for an ounce of love in a stern Victorian orphanage, with no mother to guide her and fearing any father figure, in the six years she remained at Hutton Hall, feeling rejected, abandoned and alone, Muriel became secretive and retreated into isolation, trusting no one but herself. I knew I wanted her, the Edie woman, but she were different from the others, you know, quiet-like. So it had to be a really clever murder, much cleverer than the first. As a young girl, Muriel cut quite a sad figure 
as her flat feet scraped along the care home stone floor. Her shoulders slumped, her back hunched, and the dark brown curls of her hair hiding her heartbroken eyes. And as the days dragged on, for fear of being abandoned again, this became her shield. Muriel was a ragged little mess, whose chest wheezed, whose nose sniffed, and who rarely made a sound, except to emit a timid nasal squeak. After close to six years in care, being made to feel less like an abandoned child and more like a burden on the state, aged 11, her father's sister-in-law, Ethel Suhami, asked to look after Muriel. This should have been her chance to bloom, to blossom, and to put the past of her fractured family behind her and start her life afresh by playing with some newfound pals and living in a sweet, semi-detached house on a peaceful tree-lined street at 48 Creswick Road in Acton, West London. And yet, although she liked to be called Aunt Ethel, she had no plans to become Muriel's new mum. As a fastidiously neat, supremely strict, and mealy-mouthed French widow, being partially disabled, Ethel struggled to run a lodging house, which was home to five regular residents from the local police station, all of whom needed meals cooked, beds made, and uniforms ironed. What Ethel needed was a shy, silent servant, who would do as she was told, with her head down, her mouth closed, and would sleep in a box room under the stairs, working every hour of every day for no money, no rest, and no thanks. Her servant was Muriel, and this became her life for the next 15 years. By 1939, Muriel was 27 years old. She was unmarried, uneducated, and friendless. With no money, no social life, no love life, and being unwilling to trust the local doctor, her guitar began to plague her with headaches. Muriel had very little experience in life, and yet it was almost over. That April, whether as a blessing or a curse, Aunt Ethel died. And with no next of kin, the house was sold, the lodgers moved out, and Muriel was left penniless, homeless, and once again, abandoned. But finally being free, for the first time in a long while, Muriel started to live. A few months later, she was working as a laundry assistant at Pembroke College in the historic city of Cambridge. And although war had been declared and Europe was in chaos, for once, Muriel had money, freedom and hope. And living in a shared lodging, she began to come out of her shell. By 1940, with the Blitz still a few months away, Muriel had moved back to London and was living at number 12 Roskill Road in Putney, a nice little terraced house on a neat little street owned by Martha Elizabeth Hooper, her mother's sister. But unlike dreaded old Aunt Ethel, 
Auntie Muriel was a sweet lady with a warm smile, a big heart, and all-embracing hugs, who best of all reminded Muriel of her mum. By 1943, being bored of a life in domestic service, with millions of men being posted overseas to fight for king and country, new roles had opened up for women. So being eager to do her bit, Muriel began a career as an assembler, where she learned how to build hydraulic pumps for aircraft, and met her new best friend, Pat. By 1944, relishing her independence, Muriel's confidence had began to blossom. As guided by Pat, the two pals, who were described as being like two peas in a pod, became regulars at the Half Moon Public House on Lower Richmond Road, the Amusement Hall by Putney Bridge, and a dance hall called the Black and White Milk Bar on Putney High Street. And as her social life bloomed, Muriel had begun to date. Eager to expand her horizons, Pat put her best pal forward for a plum job. And being a skilled assembler, who was regarded as essential labour, making vital components for the war effort, on the 20th of April 1944, Muriel Edie began work at a recently built factory on Western Road. It was called Ultra Electrics. It was a good job at a nice firm for a steady wage and a bright future. And with her confidence at an all-time high, Muriel had began to make a few new friends. One of whom was a softly spoken former special constable who in the months ahead would meticulously plan her death. I were medically trained, you know, in the army. So my knowledge of medicine made it possible for me to talk convincingly about sickness. She believed I could cure her. With ultraelectrics producing over 1,000 radio sets a day for civilian and military service, as well as radio equipment for one of Britain's best wartime multi-strike aircraft, Work was busy, but rewarding. In staggered shifts of 15 minutes, a multitude of machinists, assemblers, checkers, packers and office staff descended on the factory's canteen, mingling by the tea urn, scrimmaging for Chelsea buns and jostling for space on the benches. Muriel was one face in a sea of 1,500, all identically dressed in oily overalls, black boots and hairnets. And yet it was here, over a nice warm cuppa, that she got chatting to a lorry driver from the dispatch department, called John Reginald Halliday Christie. I prefer it if you call me Reg. The cruelty of her lost childhood had taught Muriel never to trust anyone, so experience should have warned her to steer clear of Christie but as a blossoming wallflower with a bright future ahead. As they chatted, she began to enjoy his company. To Muriel, Reg was a happily married man, 24 years to be precise, 
a former special constable, commended twice, and a decorated war hero, awarded the British War and Victory Medal. With a badly crumpled suit, thick lens spectacles, and false teeth which slipped when he smiled, he didn't look sinister. He looked silly. So why she liked him, we may never know. But being just slightly older than Muriel, and named Reginald, perhaps this harmless man reminded the lost child within her of happier times with her own big brother. And with that, he began to gain her trust. I knew I wanted her, the Edie woman. But she were different from the others. You know, quiet-like. So it had to be a really clever murder. Much cleverer than the first. Christie would later claim that the murder of Ruth first was unplanned. A spontaneous act of lust on a desperate and possibly pregnant woman who he had lured to his home with a gift of ten shillings. Whereas Muriel was independent, self-sufficient and guarded. With a good job, a solid wage, a stable home, a busy social life, a best friend called Pat, and it is believed a boyfriend called Ernest. Five years prior, Muriel's life was a mess. But now, she didn't need anything from anyone. Christie hadn't killed in a year, and with the police suspecting that Ruth was simply one of thousands of unidentified bodies, or body parts, which littered the city's bomb craters, having been blasted to bits by any number of aerial bombardments, the evidence of his evil crime lay undisturbed in a shallow grave in his back garden. But seeing Muriel, knowing Muriel, and liking Muriel, as those same dark urges swelled, he knew that he wanted her, and that she would be next. But without a way in, he would need to be patient. Over the next few months, he played the part of a trusted friend, inviting Muriel and her boyfriend to his home to meet his wife to chat over tea and cake, and even to make a foursome to the flicks. It made a nice change for Reg and Ethel to have company, as although they were a nice couple, they were rarely close, choosing to shower any affection on their dog Judy, rather than each other. And as pleasant as the charade was, it solved one big problem, only to open up another. Muriel liked Reg, she trusted him, and she was comfortable in his home. But now, he needed to get her alone. In September 1944, tragedy struck, when a high-explosive bomb fell on a packed air raid shelter, killing everyone inside, one of whom was Pat. To Christie, the cruel death of Muriel's best pal should have been a blessing as being so bereft, most people would seek out a sympathetic ear of a trusted friend. But as familiar feelings of abandonment rose once again, being inconsolable 
Even by her boyfriend, Muriel retreated into solitude, and Christy was at a loss. But then again, tears can have terrible side effects on a person plagued with a guitar. It had to be a really clever murder, much cleverer than the first. It was my wide knowledge of medicine which made it possible for me to talk convincingly about sickness and disease. And she readily believed that I could cure her. And as promised, a few days later, for the first time in decades, Muriel Edie wouldn't feel pain anymore. On Saturday the 7th of October 1944, after a tiring shift at ultra-electrics, made all the more gruelling as her throbbing head and painful sinuses had plagued her with weeks of fitful sleeps. Muriel dressed in a navy blue blouse, black shoes, a black artificial silk dress with a pink collar and a camel-coloured cloche coat. At 4pm, she left her Aunt Martha's house at 12 Roskill Road in Putney, saying, I shan't be late. She didn't say where she was going, or who she was meeting. She was never seen alive again. At a little after 5pm, having exited Ladbroke Grove tube station, Muriel took her usual route to Ridges. The clump of her tired feet accompanied by her chorus of coughs, wheezes and sneezes. As she passed David Griffin's refreshment room, headed east along Lancaster Road, up St Mark's Road, and turned left into the dark dead end of Rillington Place. The street was pitch black, as with each resident sticking to the strict wartime rules of the blackout, every light was off, every curtain was closed, and every door was shut. And with any sound muffled by the distant thud of bombs and tube trains which thundered by, the street was empty and eerily silent. Knocking at number 10, as the black door crept open a crack, Muriel was greeted by the slobbering drool, whimper and occasional whittle of Reggie's brown mongrel, Judy. But sadly, being up in Halifax to stay with her brother, tonight they wouldn't have the company of Ethel. So lighting the gaslight and taking her coat, with a fresh pot of tea brewing on the hob, Reg led Muriel along the thin drab hallway, past the front room with its loose creaky floorboards, the bedroom with its once strangely stained sheets, and into the cosy kitchen, barely yards from the little back garden, where Ruth's decomposing corpse lay undiscovered. And soon, so would Muriel's. Over a cuppa, the two friends chatted, with Reg perched on a small round stool in front of the alcove, as Muriel reclined in the wooden deck chair, a grey blanket covering the five lengths of rope, with a spare draped over the back, his plan to repair it. With a reassuring smile, Reg placed into her hands a square glass jar, six inches deep and wide, 
which his wife had used a few times prior to pickle fruit. Inside, instead of potted plums, sloshed a white liquid which smelled strongly of the reassuring whiff of Friar's menthol balsam. And with two crude holes drilled into the metal lid, into the right hole ran a two-metre length of rubber hose, starting in the depths of the white bubbling liquid and disappearing off towards the curtain by the slightly open kitchen window, whereas into the left hole was the short stubby end of a rubber hose, through which Muriel would inhale. And so, as Muriel leaned over the square glass jar, having placed a large scarf over her head, Muriel breathed deeply, inhaling the minty bubbling vapours. Within a minute, with her sinuses clearing and her pain disappearing, Muriel felt different. But the long rubber hose wasn't there as a steady supply of fresh air from the open window, used to purify this special compound. Instead, Reg had connected the hose to the gas pipe. And with the strong eggy smell of coal gas, disguised by the overpowering eucalyptus of the friar's balsam, as Muriel breathed deeper, her lungs slowly filled with carbon monoxide, an invisible deadly gas commonly known as the silent killer. Christie wasn't a heavy man, muscular or strong, so even the act of overpowering a small weak girl like Ruth first had been a struggle. And yet, with no force or assault, just a little bit of trust and a lot of patience, he willingly rendered Muriel unconscious. And as she lay there, slumped in his deck chair, silent, still, and passive, Reg strangled her with a length of rope. Once again, I experienced that quiet, peaceful thrill. I had no regrets. Only this time, his sordid deed wouldn't be disturbed by an urgent telegram, as Ethel would be away for weeks. And as he dragged Muriel's lifeless corpse along the communal hallway and into the bedroom, over the next few hours, he would savour every moment of his long-awaited prize. As he fondled her slowly cooling breasts, caressed the curves of her stiffening body, and kissed her protruding purple tongue, which jutted from her ruptured, bloated face, as having wanted her for months. Now, her body was his. And unlike in his joyless, sexless marriage to a frumpy, baggy hag, for once, Reg had no problem getting or maintaining an erection, as his lustful urges descended into necrophilia. The next night, her body was buried in the back garden of Ten Rillington Place, with any identification destroyed and all possessions sold. And although a missing persons report was issued, hospital admissions were checked, and her details were tallied with any lists of unidentified body parts found during the aerial bombardments, Muriel would become just one of thousands of missing people who disappeared during wartime. 
and having been cruelly abandoned by fate, and a father in name only, Muriel had finally begun to live the good life that she truly deserved. But having dropped her guard to a trusted friend, simply so he could cure her catarrh, the life of Muriel Amelia Edie was ended. I knew I wanted her, the Edie woman. But she were different from the others. You know, quiet-like. So it had to be a really clever murder. Much cleverer than the first. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you enjoyed parts one and two, part three of The Other Side of Ten Rillington Place continues next Thursday. And if you are a murky miler, stay tuned for more mindless waffle after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week, which are Nordic True Crime and Who's Your Homicide? Welcome to Nordic True Crime. We are a bi-weekly podcast covering a wide range of crimes from Europe's most northern countries. So, if you're after a smorgasbord of real crime from the dark and frozen regions of the Nordics, then give us a try. Find us on iTunes or at nordictruecrime.podbean.com on Twitter and Facebook at Nordic True Crime or on your podcast provider. And as we say in Sweden, ta hand om dig. In five, four, three. Hey everybody, this is Danielle. And this is Daniel. And I'm Carla. And we are Hoosier Homicide. A true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know what a Hoosier is. Do you? Yes. As a matter of fact, I do. Great. We don't need to look anything up. (laughs) Go to Wikipedia and type in Alabama Hot Pocket. No, don't do that. (laughs) And that'll tell you what a Hoosier is. Just come listen to us. You'll find out. Anyway, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at Hoosier Homicide. You can also download any episode you prefer off of Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We tell true crime stories with some random connection to our home state of Indiana. So come listen. That's what she said. For the love of God. (laughs) And for honest to goodness, stay out of the corn. Pretty good. And don't forget, folks, if you're looking for a special Christmas or birthday gift, check out the Murder Mile merchandise shop, as we have exclusive Murder Mile mugs, badges, thank you cards, and even bespoke gifts. But also there's a Threadless store there, full of t-shirts, bags, wallets, and literally everything. You could also treat your loved one to a subscription to Murder Mile's Patreon account, where they will receive each episode days before everyone else. If you're interested, check the links in the show notes. Murder Mile was researched, written, and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well.
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's extra mile time, it's extra mile time It's extra mile time, it's extra mile time That might become the new tune, it might not become the new tune, I don't know I'm making it up as I go along How are we all? Are we all good? Are we all having a good day? I hope you all are, whether you're out walking your dog or... Obviously, picking up your poo as well. Were you there? And not your poo, your dog's poo, because that would be weird if you did a poo in the garden and your dog was looking at you, and and the dog was like, "Why are you doing a poo? I'm meant to be doing a poo." And then you picked your own poo. Or even weirder, if your dog picked up your poo. Actually, that make a nice change, wouldn't it? Dogs really have got it sorted, haven't they? They we we really are their servants. They just lie there. They get the bellies rubbed. They get tickles. They get strokes. They get all the food done and sorted and then we just pick up after them they really have got a great life haven't they i'd love to be a dog uh, maybe that's maybe i'll maybe if i am reincarnated i'll come back as a dog maybe that's it because we always used to say that like our dog we had a, a lovely little um um he wasn't little um a rough collie called bertie and he was super intelligent sorry i'm going off on a tangent to uh welcome to people who've never been to extra mile before i'll introduce this properly shortly uh he used to have uh, two really lovely uh rough collie dogs called bertie and banner uh who i still have pictures of them here even 20 years after they they passed away um and bertie was banner was thick i'm gonna be honest he was a bit thick he didn't have the best brain cells in the world <laughs> He really was a little bit stupid, and but but lovable, you know, really really lovable. Like, you know, um, I used to play hide and seek with the dogs, and if you opened up all the doors in the house, you could basically run in a circle. And I I would go right, stay, stay, and I go, okay, go like that, and Banner would dash off around the house, kind of go go running around in circles, and he'd keep running and running and running until he could find me, and I was just hiding behind a door. And he would do it for hours and he'd get really confused, whereas Bertie was super intelligent. 
really was intelligent. He would just come clumping over and he'd walk into the downstairs bathroom and his head would go around the corner. You could see him and he'd just go, you're there. You're there. I knew you were there. And then he'd clump away. He was really clever, really clever dog. Knew 96 words. We used to worry at the start because at the start we realised he knew the word uh, walkies, obviously as all dogs do. So we started to spell it. And then we realised that if we said W-A, it was like he was in. He'd go straight to the door. And the same with... Oh, T's about to ruin. Same with other words like biscuit. So we had to start learning to... Well, we knew how to spell, obviously, but we had to start spelling the words. But the problem is he could spell biscuit as well. And we knew that he knew the words really well. Because if we go B-I, he goes straight to the biscuit cupboard and points. That was his thing. If he... If he wanted something, he would look at you, then he'd point at something. Not with his paws, with his nose, obviously. It'd be weird if he pointed with his paws. But, um, how did I get onto that? Coming back as a dog. Yeah, no, I'd love to come back as a dog. Um, so I'm making tea. I haven't even washed out my coffee cup. I literally am just, I just put my tea in my coffee cup. This is gonna be awful, but I really need a cup of tea. Uh, so I can't remember why I started that that waffling story. Anyway, it might come back to me. Uh, I'd love to be a dog. Yeah, dogs, dogs, great life. Uh, so, um, <laughs> welcome to Extra Mile. Uh, if you if you're unfamiliar with Extra Mile, this is the uh, unscripted bit, as you probably guessed from that first bit. Um, there's some sounds in it, but that's real sounds. That was me making a cup of tea on the on the hob. Um, nice cup of tea. Uh, it's, this is just regular PG tips. So anyone out there who's bought a Murder Mile mug, I'm raising my Murder Mile mug to you now. I've got my Murder Mile mug, the prototype. Mm, thank you very much. Um, and I've put in a, a PG tips tea bag with two sugars and one milk. But obviously I think some of you get my tea bags. Uh, I've been putting in... It's a, it's, it's a sweetened tea. It's a biscuit tea. I know. I, as a tea drinker, I never knew they had biscuit tea. But it literally is either Taylor's of Harrogate or I think it is Yorkshire tea. And it's a biscuit tea. So you don't need to sweeten it. Uh, if you have, enjoy. Uh, anyway, welcome to Extra Mile. Hope everyone enjoyed that. That was part two of uh, The Other Side of Ten Rillington Place. Um Really enjoyed that. I've enjoyed researching it, and I've been having a lot of uh, a lot of fun writing it as well. Um, just before we go into that, I'm just going to sidetrack slightly. Um, I don't know whether it appears in this episode. You might have noticed my first ever sponsored advert. Ooh, it's by uh, a book called "Lies Sleeping" by Ben Aranovich. I'm not very good at saying Aranovich, so I had to. Um, practice that a couple of times <laughs> but I, I just did my first advert so Acast who run my um, podcast sent me a, a sponsored thing and said uh, are you interested in doing this sponsored advert there's a quick turnaround but instead of them playing out an advert because you know that I use dynamic advertising so basically wherever you are it plays an advert based on the preferences set on your phone, like your GPS location and any details that you may have... It's, it's, it's a bit creepy in a way. Any details that you may have inputted elsewhere, so it knows whether you're female, it knows your age, it knows your interests based on... Ooh, I apologise. Your browser history. Mm. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Good luck with that. But this was different. This literally... Uh, Acas got in touch and said, "Do you fancy doing this?" Uh, so, um, and they gave gave me a brief to read out. 
so that's that. It's my first advert. So hopefully that, that might make a little bit of money for me. Uh, anything that helps kind of pay for the cost of uh, uh, Murder Mile is great because I, I don't really make a lot off it. But I do absolutely love it. Where am I at the moment? I can probably tell you that I'm at the back of the the uh, Olympic Stadium in London, which is now the West Ham ground. Uh, so over in Stratford, by the time you listen to this, I won't be there anymore. But it's quite nice. It's quite peaceful. Uh, there's loads of coots around. I'm near Stratford Centre, so lots of shops. Uh, I'm near the post office, so anyone who's ordered mugs uh, is getting mugs at the moment. So I, I can deliver those. That's great. But it has been torrential rain here Uh it's been torrential rain for about three days, non-stop, really thick. Uh, I've been bailing out the boat because the leaves fall and sometimes the bow of the boat gets clogged with leaves and the rain can't disappear down into the little off channels. So I've been bailing out the boat, but I left out a little uh, uh, measuring jug one day because I was using it to fill up my uh, generator with oil and I left it out overnight. When I came in the next morning, there was it was overflowing. There was more than a litre of rain in there. So normally when you come out and you it's been raining, like especially in Britain, you'd get a couple of inches. But this was this was easily a litre of rainwater just over one night. So that's how much water we've had. But today is a lovely, clear day, lovely, clear day. So uh, a, a nice, quiet day to do uh, uh, recording, even though because it's a clear day, the, there's lots of aircraft going over. It's very noisy. There's lots of joggers out. Uh, uh, whistling as they jog and there's a man on a kind of a motorized lawnmower and it's very funny he's he's it's he's it's got it's got a little seat in it and he can sit upright but he's not sitting up upright he's leaning forwards like he's like he's in racing mode like he's doing a hundred miles an hour but he's not he's doing about three uh, he's been passed twice it's, it's very funny <laughs> just keep me very entertained so whew, part two of 10 Rillington place hope you're enjoying it i'm having a lot of fun writing it and piecing it together and uh it's quite creepy as well i'm quite enjoying it i'll explain a little bit more in a bit but step one uh so obviously we're in a different part of town we're not in soho i've i've created a special map online uh, if you go to my website you go to murdermiletours.com forward slash podcast all the links to the old episodes are there but also uh to all the blogs that i write with it as well and all the videos are in there. So if you want to see what these locations look like, click on there. All the location videos are there. Some of the pictures are there, but also the maps are there as well. So you can have a look at those. They're really interesting. Uh, and it sh I've done one specially for 10 Rillington Place. So you can see how close these locations are. They, Some of them really are. Everything is contained within a set area. But this Ultra Electric Limited, which was where John Reginald Christie worked, uh, where he met Amelia Eady, that was a bugger to find. No, really was a bugger to find. Uh, if you read any of the books anywhere, read any books. I, I did actually use some books for this because uh, there's one really good book by uh, Jonathan Oates. He basically went through all the files that I, went, I did and he basically wrote everything up and he's done a nice version. It's, he, he hasn't storified it. It's just very factual, but he's he's quite thorough. Um so he went through the same notes. So really, it was like, like a second reference for me. So that was really useful. Uh, he hasn't embellished it in any way. But he had the same problem I did in the fact that you go through the all of the files in the National Archives about John Reginald Christie and uh, the other names that I won't mention yet because that will spoil the rest of the series if you don't know. Um, it mentions that they worked at Ultra Electric, John Reginald Christie and... Uh, 
uh, Muriel Ed. But everywhere, if you look everywhere, all it says is Ultra Electric, Western Avenue, Park Royal, or Acton, which are two technically they're next to each other, but they're technically they're not the same place really. It's it's slightly confusing. Um, so I was like, right, you know me, I like to find get things right, and I was like, right, where is this location? Because what I want to do is film myself at this location and say. Here I am, you know, you, you get those little videos of me going, look, here I am, and this is where Ultra Electric originally was. Now, the problem is Western Avenue is huge. It's massive. It's part of the A40, uh, and it covers at least at least three miles. And that's a little bit too vague for me. So I really had to go into the history of this. I, I went through... Uh, loads of old brochures for Ultra Electric because they're a, they're a radio manufacturer. I went to uh where did I go to I went to uh, all all the newspaper archives I went through all the adverts I even went through job listings that they posted and all of them said Western Avenue either Park Royal or Acton it changed and that was really frustrating it was like oh my god where is this place I can't just take potluck so I had to go through a history of um uh, 1920s 1930s radio manufacturers and I found some really, really geeky dudes <laughs> who love these old valve sets. And uh, there was one person on there who's, I, I think it was his dad or his granddad, used to work at Extra Electric and referenced the fact that Extra Electric was opposite the Hoover building. And I know the Hoover building well, because sometimes in Perryville, I'm more up at the back of that. Uh, I'll be there in winter. In fact, uh, that's my winter place. So I knew it really well. I was like, oh, thank God. So uh, that was a nightmare, just trying to find that location. Because I would hate to have opened this episode and gone... I mean, like, sometimes with Glyndor Michael, you have to. Like, there was, it's never been mentioned where Glyndor Michael was found uh, when he'd been poisoned. But here I had to. So that was really exciting. Uh, apparently, it's, it's they're going to try and build uh, a new area there. Or they were planning to build a housing estate there called... Uh, what was it called? Um, uh, Ultra Way, it was meant to be called. Named after Ultra Electric. But whether that happened, I don't know. Uh, so, that was finding the location. That was a pig. Um, little caveat in here. I've mentioned in here that Muriel had a boyfriend, possibly called Ernest Lawson uh, obviously um, Muriel was quite uh, she quite she kept herself to herself even with her uh, auntie Martha who she liked not like bad old auntie Ethel who uh, bleh, boo. Uh, auntie Martha was the one she really liked they got on really well it was her mother's sister reminded her of her mother but uh, Muriel was quite closed you know she she wouldn't open up to anyone it was hard to get into her so she never really told her mother anything uh, but it is believed that she had a boyfriend called Ernest Lawson, who was the night watchman at Ultra Electric. Um, now, originally, when I was going through these details, I thought, oh, this is interesting. This um, They're referencing uh, John Reginald Christie as her boyfriend, as her boyfriend, because I was going through the details and they said her boyfriend was a retired policeman, middle-aged, slim build, uh, medium height, uh, he said very little uh, and no one seemed to know his name and that he was either working as a gatekeeper or a night watchman at Ultra. And then he kind of disappeared after Pat's uh, disappearance. Uh, but uh, slowly when you go through the details, it seems to suggest that it was more Ernest was the name of... Uh, Ernest Lawson was the name of her boyfriend, although we know very little about him. 
Uh, but he was, uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, Christy stayed at Ultra Electric for at least another two years after that. So he didn't disappear at all. Uh, I think there's just, you know, there would have been a lot of retired policemen out there or people who'd served as uh, volunteer, what did I say, volunteer war reservists, which Christy was. He wasn't a policeman, he was a war reservist, which meant um, when war started, basically, if you were not old enough to be conscripted into the army, uh, of which the ages changed over time, and actually they started to allow women in as well because they needed, you know, they needed cannon fodder, really. Um, um, a lot of people who were kind of <coughs> older or kind of had infirmities or, or for whatever reason were war reservists, which meant they were either sent into factories to build munitions or they became kind of like special constables, which means they weren't really policemen, but they had kind of police powers. Uh, and they worked for the police force. And that's what Christie was. Um, interesting thing that I was going through while I was in here. So going through the research, trying to work out why Muriel uh, liked Reginald Christie. Because obviously he's an odd man to look at. He's strange looking, you know, with his kind of uh, bald head, but the kind of hair around, around just over his, he his ears, his, his glasses, which are slightly over-prescribed. Uh, and his false—I love that detail—the false teeth that kept slipping when he would talk because they were they were just a little bit too big, and he wouldn't get them fixed. Um, trying to work out why she liked him, especially with his slightly, slightly, slightly creepy voice. Um, it was interesting going through and finding that she, if she did have a boyfriend called Ernest. Um, oh, okay. So, so um, I'd put in there already now this this may not be true obviously she's not alive anymore so we could, we're only conjecting against this but um because reginald christie wasn't her father's age uh but was actually kind of nearer her brother's age and he was called reginald as well i'm i'm presupposing here that she may have looked at him as an older brother type as opposed to a father figure which she would have hated more of an older brother which you know, having grown up through the care system together and unfortunately split up years later, maybe this is why she liked him. This is why she liked Reg Christie. And also while going through the details as well, this is conjecture as well, but she had that boyfriend, Ernest Lawson. Now, her other younger brother is also called Ernest as well. Could just be... Could just be a coincidence. It really could be, but... Maybe that's kind of uh, a little bit of an insight into who she was, uh, who she was, what she was about, what she liked, what she disliked. Uh, I don't know. So, so I'm distracted. I just found the oh, biscuits, pack of biscuits. It's not cakes today. It's biscuits. Right. I just found a pack of biscuits. Oh, I'll discuss those shortly. Right. So um, <coughs> we've got a couple of last sightings of uh, Muriel before she disappeared. So that was on uh, Saturday, the 7th of October, 1944. Uh, she'd obviously gone home to 10 Roskill Road in, in Putney. Uh, to, she, uh, some accounts say that she'd had lunch with her auntie, Ma Auntie Martha. Uh, some accounts say that she went, she came back from work. Uh, so I've had to take a guess that it was work that day. Uh, it could have been lunch. We don't know. Uh, she left around four o'clock saying uh, shan't be late. But she never told her auntie where she was going, who she was meeting, who she was with, what she was doing. She literally was heading out. Auntie Martha suspected in her witness statement that Muriel was pregnant. Uh, 
Now, this is kind of useful for the story that we're telling here, because obviously we've got Ruth first, who was possibly pregnant as well. Um, and uh, if um, maybe Martha was possibly pregnant as well. So there might be the, if you know the story, you know that there's a bit of a correlation going on. But this is kind of useful uh, for this point, just a little bit of background information. Um, but Martha wasn't that worried. Auntie Martha wasn't that worried about uh, Muriel disappearing. Now, I was going to put this in at the end of the story, but it really slowed it down. So I had to, I had to take a lot of this out uh, because we we kind of covered it in part one anyway, really, with Ruth. But uh, uh, Muriel had uh, she'd often uh, go away like for nights to stay with friends and things like that. So it wasn't unknown for her to disappear for a couple of nights and then come back without anyone letting her aunt know where she was going so um auntie martha wasn't really that worried about it to be honest um it was only on the 14th of october when obviously this was a week later uh muriel hadn't come back for her birthday it was her birthday cards had started piling up presents had started piling up she wasn't there uh, around the time that she disappeared there'd been a lot of uh air raids going on and in uh bombs going off there'd been flying bombs uh, because this was the later part in the war there'd been quite a few v1 rockets so um unlike the doodle bugs unlike the the 25 kilogram high capacity explosives that used to be dropped from the what was the german bombers was that a hinkel a hinkel i think it was a hinkel wasn't it the german bombers i should really have looked into that um Instead of the bombs being dropped by the Heinkels, uh the V1 rockets were basically guess up and goes. They're like the old, they're like the Iraqi Scud missiles, remember from the 1980s, 1990s, where basically you point it in the right direction. It has basically a calibration device, which basically tells it roughly what direction it's going and, and height. And basically you put in so many litres of fuel precisely. And then when the fuel runs out, it drops so you'd hear it go, and then it just it goes silent. And those were the V1 rockets. They were, everyone said they were really terrifying. They referred to them as the flying bombs. So 1944, there was lots of flying bombs going off, basically being launched from, if I remember correctly, that uh, over in the Hague, because the Nazis had occupied the Hague by that point. I never thought my my history of the war would come in handy, but it does. I used to read a lot about the war when I was a kid. I always found it fascinating. Uh, so. Um, she did believe that Martha was possibly pregnant. They, she thought that maybe she'd possibly eloped with her boyfriend uh, to go and have the baby else, elsewhere or to or run away, you know. But in her bedroom, uh, Muriel had left... Muriel had... Oh, her name I can't pronounce. <sighs> Muriel Amelia Leedy. See, that's been a bugger for this whole episode. I think people deliberately get murdered with names I can't pronounce just to really mess me around. <laughs> um, in Muriel's bedroom, she had left her ration book and her post office book. So 1940s London. Obviously, all of her savings, all of her money are in a post office. That's where most most people kept their money. Uh, interesting fact, uh, Alec Guinness, who obviously was Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, um, even though he was a famous film star, so this is a diversion, but I read it in his biography and it tickled me pink. Um, he obviously, being such being such like an English gentleman for years, uh, he would always keep his money in the post office account, like everyone did, especially during wartime and stuff like that. 
And then when he was offered the role for Star Wars, this was later in his career, um, he hated the script. He thought it was dreadful. He really didn't want to do it. But he's, he was in his twilight years. He needed the money. And basically he turned around to them and said they couldn't afford to give him his proper salary. So basically they said, look, we'll give you a decent wage, a decent high enough credit on there. Uh, and we'll give you a percentage of, of you know, the money it makes. So, uh, I mean, no one was earning percentages in those days. It just didn't exist. But that, it was kind of one of the first things. So he was like, yeah, fine, I need the money. He, he did the shoot, got paid for it. The script was dreadful. He hated the film. Obviously, Star Wars became a huge, massive film. And he st- and he had a percentage of, of, um, of, of the uh, grocers. So all this money started going into Alec Guinness's uh, post office account. And the post office had to turn around to him and say, you can't do this. You can't have you can't have millions of pounds in a post office account. You're going to have to open a proper bank account. So I thought that was like, that's nice. There's a nice biography by uh, autobiography by Alec Guinness. Uh, so it's very much worth reading. I like Alec Guinness. He's one of my heroes. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, uh, Muriel left in her room her ration book which is absolutely vital during wartime because you really couldn't get any food without it. If you were to go into a grocer's or a butcher's and say, can I have some of that, please? They'll go, can I see your ration book? And they'll take out the stamps. And her post office account, she had no access to it, so she had no money and she couldn't get any food. Uh, it had been her birthday. All the cards were piling up. Therefore, uh, just after that, her cousin, who we mentioned about earlier on, who was Alfred, uh, I should remember his name, Alfred James Dunn, done part of my surname for god's sake uh he filled in a missing persons report but there were a lot of bombings around the time and one of the ones which uh i would say the date is incorrect if i can get the right date there was a bombing at a they said a dance hall in putney and it is believed to be the black and white which was the one that muriel and pat used to visit uh so so auntie martha believed that her niece muriel had, had died burpees had died there um but whether but they obviously they couldn't prove it because obviously there's lots of body parts and things like that uh hospital admissions were checked as mentioned as well as a list of unidentified persons and body parts which have been found uh this will prove useful later on Uh, obviously those of you who know this story already um don't worry, I know you'll probably listen to that episode and you're like, oh, on, there's a really, really interesting bit that's missing. It's not missing. Don't forget, this is an eight, at least an eight-parter. So a lot of these stories, I'm saving bits so they kind of come back again and again. There's nothing worse than just blurting out all the information and ruining the story. Um, uh, her employers were one of the first people who noticed that she was missing. Obviously, she didn't t- turn up to work on a Monday. Uh, and on the 25th of October, this is classic of a, an employer, they requested uh, a medical certificate or a sick note. Yeah. Not not where is she? Is she okay? Has anybody seen her? No, we need a sick note so we can put it in our file. Classic employers. Um, her father, William Eady, uh, only was aware of her disappearance in 1945, so a year later. And even worse than that, Reginald, her older brother, um, he only became aware. This shows how fractured the family was. He only became aware of the fact that Muriel had disappeared in 1953. That's nine years later. Oh, oh, my nose is getting bunged up now. Nine years later, when he read it in a newspaper. 
I know. So uh, that says a lot about the family. Um, one interesting thing that uh, I found going through all of the archive details. So if you've watched the great film, that fantastic film I've mentioned uh, with um, oh, uh, uh, Sir Richard Attenborough playing John Reginald Christie. Uh, watch it. Please do watch it. There's a couple of spoilers in it. But you know what? It will. I think it will help... Um, help you enjoy this this series even more because that ten Rillington plays the film is the classic depiction of the John Reginald Christie story right and you can watch Reginald you can watch ten Rillington you can watch Rillington place with Eric Roth and Emily Mortimer uh, and that's a really good BBC series three-parter but it, it kind of goes mine is entirely different to this this is kind of a very different balance on the story very this is the the side of the story that's never told but when you watch the real uh, Tanner Ellington plays the film, what happens is is that Christie um, he has the glass jar that I mentioned the glass the square glass jar and he puts in the white liquid in the bottom and it's got the two holes in the top with the one with the rubber hose which is you breathe through and the other rubber hose that secretly went behind the curtain near the window so it looked like it was getting air fresh air but really it was uh, connected to the gas pipe. Uh, so uh, his victims would die of carbon monoxide poisoning. But in the film, what happens is he gets the lady to put um, basically a, a homemade gas mask, basically like a square of cardboard uh, with tape over it, over her mouth, connected to the tube, and he gets her to breathe it in, like like Muriel did. And, and she's going, oh, that's Friar's Bolton that's clearing up my sinuses. But really, it was to disguise uh, the carbon monoxide. Uh, the gas mask didn't exist at all it was a fabrication created for the film only and it makes perfect sense when you think about it because i was going through the files going where's the gas mask it doesn't exist there's no reference to the gas mask and there isn't at all what christie used to do so he created um see as i said before his his uh statements are very confusing and, and on details because let's not forget some of these are a year Ooh, two police are going past i like that they're patrolling the canal they're gonna go and beat someone up <laughs> they're not not police are very good um so um basically uh yeah in the film uh, he would put the gas mask over her her face and obviously that makes sense because it, it kind of it explains how they would be ca become gassed but uh, in the muriel ed case uh he, he basically uh had had the scarf over her head that was her choice to she put the scarf over her head, the fryer's balsam in front of her. It was bubbling away and she was inhaling the fumes. He had the window as as well open to make sure that he didn't get gassed because there was gas entering the room. Uh, and he'd got the fire off as well to make sure there was no explosions as well. Um, so basically she was gassing herself. But with the others, from what I can tell... Um, Sometimes he would use the the uh, the square jar with the the um, with the fries balsam in it, but other times he would uh, have the tube underneath the chair. And because carbon monoxide uh, is uh, tasteless and odorless, basically you'd have the tube kind of under the chair or behind them and basically it would just be overpowering them it would just be underneath the chair and kind of floating up and them over being overpowered and he would use uh, anything else to kind of dis disguise it as well so uh so so yeah um even though it's in the film the, the makeshift gas mask didn't exist it never existed it was entirely fabricated for the film but it makes perfect sense uh but pretty much everything else in there is correct if you look at the um 
if you oh if you look at the film Ten Rillington Place, that is the original location. Just before Rillington Place was demolished uh, in the nineteen seventies for the slum clearance, um, they had access to the street. No one was living there anymore, so they were like, right, sod it, we'll have that. So if you watch the film and you go, hang on, that set looks amazing, it looks real. It is. It's Ten Rillington Place, and hence the rooms are accurate. The kitchen, uh, they they've done a fantastic job going through and making the kitchen look. It looks identical. Everything looks identical. It's really good. But really with the film, that's the only thing they changed really was the gas mask. Uh, and they don't really dive into uh, Christie's, his warped belief. And that's what I'm trying to get across in this series is the difference between what is the truth and what is Christie's perspective. Um this was kind of interesting writing this episode. I'm going to have another glug of tea. I'm doing it away from the mic so people who don't like hear me glug don't hear me glug. You probably heard me glug then. Um, <laughs> um, interesting thing while I was writing this episode. So the first episode, obviously, Ruth first. I'd, because I, what I wanted to do was kind of, kind of introduce you to Christy over a series of episodes. So instead of going, Reginald Christie was born on the 14th of November, 1857. You know, that kind of thing, that kind of episode where, you, oh, it's just dull and boring. What I wanted to do was, oh, two more coppers. Oh, I've got four coppers on the beat now. This is great. No, no, five coppers. Oh, that must mean we've had a lot of burglaries in the area. Ah, shit. Um, <laughs> um, what was I talking about? Oh, right in the episode. So the ep first episode... Uh, Ruth first, what I deliberately did was introduced her life and then what I and then I slowly introduced Christy by using his voice and you know how they met and things like that. And that's what I I'm doing with this series. I'm slowly introducing you to John Reginald Christie and his life through his victims, rather than this just being Christie's story. And that's why I was starting with part two. I wrote Muriel's story, it's entirely her way. And then I introduced the fact that they met and then as I was writing the episode, I was like, hang on, this has slowly become Christie's story. I seem to be telling it all from his perspective. Because at the start, what I try to do is get into the victim's mindset. So when, when I'm telling you their history, I'm trying to tell you what, how they feel. I'm trying to tell you, you know, based on what I know about them at that point, how they feel at that moment, because it's, it's, it's all about emotion. And all of a sudden I was talking about Christie's feelings and what he was thinking. I was thinking, oh, no, this is entirely wrong. I need to rewrite this. So I tried to rewrite the second half. And then I was like, I couldn't write her. Couldn't write it from Muriel's perspective anymore. All of a sudden, Reg Christie had taken over. He'd taken over my brain. And I kept trying to fight against it. And it was going... It was going the way I didn't, didn't expect it to go. So I thought to myself, do you know what? Let's do this. This is this is way that your subconscious writes for you. So I was like, let the story write itself. So, um, so yeah, it's Reg is slowly taking over the story. And I think it will, it will work nicely for part three. Part three is going to be very different as well. Especially if you've seen the film and you've read some books on it. I think part three will entirely change your perspective because it's like, oh, I didn't know that. I thought it just happened this one way. It didn't. I'm not going to give away too much. Uh, what else we got? What else we got? I'm looking at all my stuff here. Lots of stuff. Um, should I read some? Just, I've got loads of Christie statements. Uh... 
let's read this one. This was Christie's words based on uh, this attack on Muriel Ed. Obviously, this was relayed through a policeman, so it's kind of it's kind of shortened down. It doesn't have really Christie's flow to it. If you read his court documents, they do. They really have a kind of you understand how he talks. But uh, this way, it doesn't. So uh, this one just says, uh, on one occasion... I'm not going to do her voice. Uh, his voice. Uh, on one occasion, she came alone. I believe she... This is... Remember how I said last time about how vague he is with these statements. I believe she complained of Qatar. Really. Believe. Did really. Really. That's why you, <laughs> you created the, uh, the uh, basically, euthanasia device. I believe she complained of Qatar. Uh, and I said that I thought I could help her. She came by appointment when my wife was out conveniently when Ethel was out uh, I believe my wife was on holiday he knows that his wife was in Halifax uh, I think I mixed uh, I love this I think I mixed some stuff up he thinks uh, some inhalants Friars Balsam was one uh, she was in the kitchen and at the time she was inhaling with a square scarf over her head I remember now it was in the bedroom he remembers now it was in the bedroom. Uh, it wasn't in the bedroom, it was in, in the kitchen because he didn't have a gas pipe in the bedroom. We well, did, but it was being used. But the one the one in the uh, kitchen uh, was, um, it, it was part of a gas bracket and it deliberately had been, um, something had been removed, but the pipe was still there. So he basically had the rubber hose over it and he used a bulldog clip to stop the gas escaping which is why he could turn it on and off when he needed to, to, to overpower his victims and make the liquid all bubbly. Wasn't one in the bedroom. Um, there was one. Um, no, ooh, I almost gave something away. Shit, okay. Uh, the liquid was in a square jar with a metal screw top lid. I made two holes in the lid and through one of the holes I put a ru rubber tube uh, from the gas into the liquid. Through the other hole I put another rubber tube, tube about two feet long. Uh, the tube didn't touch the liquid. The idea was to stop it coming out and smelling of gas. They inhaled the stuff from the tube. I did it to make her dopey. She became sort of unconscious. And I have a vague recollection, here we go again, uh, of getting a stocking. It wasn't a stocking. Although it's hard. I Again, I've said here that um, he said that he strangled her with a stocking and he said he strangled her with a rope so for the sake of consistency i'm sticking with rope uh because it's the uh missing rope from the back of the the deck chair it makes sense if we stick to that but just so you know it could have been a stocking uh, this happens a lot throughout this story, so the vague recollections, recollections continue i have a vague recollection of getting a stocking and and tying it around her neck I'm not too clear about this. It may have been the Austrian girl that I used gas on. It wasn't. Because um, he hadn't created that by that point. Uh, he didn't have a reason to create um, the euthanasia device because it was the Fry's balsam in there used to get rid of her guitar. Um, the Austrian girl, Ruth first, didn't have guitar. So uh, that wouldn't have happened at all. I don't think it was both. I believe I had intercourse with her at the time I strangled her. He didn't. He strangled her first. The post-mortem uh, confirmed that. I think I put her in the wash house. He did. He hid her body briefly in there for a little while. Uh, that night, I buried her in the garden on the right-hand side nearest the yard. She was still wearing her clothing. Well, that bit's true anyway. <laughs> oh, dear. So, uh, that was just some extra details from part two hope you enjoyed that there's there's loads of stuff in there I'm, I'm having to keep a list of all the stuff that i'm not using uh 
because obviously this being an eight-parter, what the, the the weird thing is with a, with a multi-parter, part one is the hard episode because you, you're working out the rhythm and the tone and the style of it. So that was a real pig to write. And I have to say, if you've listen, if you already listened to it, it was a pig to edit as well. I recorded it, I edited it, I almost got it, uploaded it, then I re-listened to it, then I realised how slow and dull it was. So then I stripped out five minutes out of it, which is a lot. That's about an eighth eighth or a ninth out of it uh so it's a much faster episode now and i tried to make this one faster as well but yeah no it's, episode one was getting the style of of what it's about what, what kind of music we use uh how we introduce reg uh this second one um good to write but uh yeah enjoying it really enjoying it i don't know what i was going to say with that then i've just literally lost count i'm looking at biscuits i'm looking at biscuits um so that's it hope you enjoyed that um part three next week uh we'll keep plodding along there'll be loads of loads of different pieces coming and going throughout the episode so uh uh lots of locations will come back lots of pieces that you think i haven't included will be included later on some pieces that you think hmm uh uh in ep one and part and ep two will come back in ep three do you know it's all it's all going to be very exciting anyway that was part two of the other side of Ten Reelington Place. If you enjoy Murder Mile, please do tell your friends. Uh, if you like this series, uh, message your mates on uh, Facebook or Twitter or whatever. It really is helpful, you know, uh, struggling to kind of get new listeners because new listeners mean new revenue, which means I can keep doing the podcast. Uh, still struggling a bit at the moment. So, uh, yeah, if, if, if anyone really does fancy, you know, post a message out there so going hey hey guys this is a really good good series give it a go because unfortunately it's it's the the big companies do you know when you go on itunes and everyone goes oh dr death you have to watch dr you have to listen to dr death it's amazing it's amazing oh my god it's amazing you'll realize that within episode one it's top of the itunes chart it's not because people are downloading it it's because their their podcast provider has connections to itunes and they can literally go We've got a new series. Can you put it to the top? Uh, can you put it on your front page? So little podcasts like mine don't get... We don't have that. We don't have that ability. Whereas the big podcasts where everyone go, goes, oh my God, this is amazing. This is amazing. Oh my God. And everyone gets excited about it. And they all go on the forums and they go, I've just discovered this. I'm great. I'm amazing. Really, it's not. Really, it's just it's just people being duped by big companies that have money. And that's it uh so yeah so if, if you can help out a little podcaster that that will be very much appreciated uh we don't have any money and we don't have a lot of equipment and we we struggle a bit and we work we work harder than these big companies that produce a six-part episode and get right to the itunes ch- chart and it's like i've got almost 50 episodes now and i slug my guts out they do six and they have millions of downloads oh god it's so frustrating anyway <laughs> anyway that was part two of the other side of 10 reeling to place hope you enjoyed it i am now about to go and eat some double chock crunch creams hope you are too and i will speak to you all soon have yourself a great week lots of love bye bye hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.